Some of you may have heard of the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, Elon Musk, whose net worth is a measly $162.8 billion, second only to Jeff Bezos. He's also known for starting up Zip2, an online mapping and directory service, as well as X.com, an online banking company that we know today as PayPal. The closest people to Elon describe him as a science fiction character, a cartoon billionaire, a blend between Tony Stark from the Iron Man movies and Hank Scorpio of The Simpsons with rockets, fast cars, and a personal life that's like a roller coaster. One of the best descriptions that sums him up perfectly is relentless. Even at times when he teetered between success and disaster, he couldn't fathom failure or giving up. During his earlier years in business, he was known for sleeping in his office right under his desk. He felt that sleep was a distraction from getting things done. He has this insatiable desire to learn and read books. In fact, one person said in 2001, before he started SpaceX, he knew nothing about rockets. But by 2007, he knew everything about them in detail. The man is so competitive that while he was on a mountain biking trip with coworkers who were way more athletic than him, doing a, a trail that was so steep, one of the guys who's an experienced mountain biker vomited going up. Elon was so determined to get up to the top, he was beat red and looked like he was killing himself by the time he finally made it. And that kind of mindset has driven a workplace where he demands employees to use what he calls special forces method. In other words, do whatever it takes to get the job done. Cut corners if you have to. I want results. He's been known to get furious if he didn't see people still at work at their cubicles at 9 p.m. at night or to call people in during the weekend just to make sure they kept working. He even tried to pay one of his engineers at SpaceX to change the date of his wedding because it was near the launch date of their first rocket and couldn't understand when the engineer said that changing the date of the wedding is not worth losing his future wife. Elon is unapologetically relentless and yet undeniably successful. But what drives him? Believe it or not, it's not money. In fact, he's admitted during the hardest times he's had, he's had to sacrifice everything to be successful. All his money and friendships, so it has to work. You see, Elon is an all-or-nothing kind of guy. He throws himself into anything he does, and what he wants is to do what's never been done before. In his eyes, that's saving humanity from itself through the green movement with energy-efficient cars, solar heating, and space travel but not in a Mother Teresa kind of way. One co uh, colleague described him in an article as selfish for glory. He wants to do great things for humanity to get all the glory that comes with it. Typically, anyone who wants to be successful at the highest level is known in some way for being relentless. Whether it's Stephen Hawking's, Beethoven, Ernest Hemingway, Da Vinci, and I hate to say this, but even Tom Brady, they have these unusual quirks and habits that push them towards greatness. When everyone else is coloring within the lines, they're always thinking outside the box, desperate to find any advantage to grow. Successful people are often relentless people, but success in anything 
always comes at a cost. In the Old Testament, God calls himself a consuming fire, meaning he's a jealous God who wants to be seen and worshiped as God alone in his people's lives. And in the same way, when Jesus calls us into a relationship with him, no matter who we are, whether we're, we end up being a missionary or a pastor or we're a businesswoman or a little child praying at his mother's feet, Jesus is calling us to be his disciples, which requires an all-out commitment to him. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money or and so much of your work. I want you. There are no tears in Christianity where the most committed people go to the varsity team while the rest stay on JV. To be in a relationship with Jesus is to be in the purest sense, relentless, running after him with everything we have. But devotion always comes at a cost. Yet like Elizabeth Elliot once said, there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. Luke 14 is filled with different exchanges that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And like Pastor Tim said last week, these were the spiritual giants of their day. They weren't seen as self-righteous by the general public. Rather, most people would look at them in the same way we look at maybe an Andy Stanley or Tim Keller. They were who everyone else wanted to be. As experts of the law, many thought they were perfect. But in the parable that Jesus gives about the great banquet God's people will have with him in heaven, right before the passage we're looking at today, uh, the guests who were originally invited to the party, uh, but were too distracted living their lives to come, are meant at least in part to be the Pharisees, who you would think with all their knowledge of scripture and God would have been the first in line ready to barge into the party, but instead proved through their lives that they never truly embraced what a relationship with God is all about. With this in mind, as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem and probably going through an area in Perea he hasn't been through before, a large crowd starts following him, curious to see if this miracle worker has, is everything he's cracked up to be. You can imagine how electric it must have been to be there as people were waiting to see what Jesus is going to say or do next. But then it takes a sharp turn when Jesus warns them that following him isn't something they can take lightly. Now remember, many of the people here are just window shopping. They're trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. But Jesus doesn't want people coming to him under any false pretenses. He's not a salesman trying to get you to buy his product at a low rate only to find out about all the hidden fees later on. Jesus is saying, before you walk down to the altar, there are a couple things you need to know. Being his disciple will cost you something. Salvation itself is free, but following Jesus comes at a price. In fact, it'll affect the two most personal, or at least two of the most personal areas of our lives. First, it will change our closest relationships. We'll never be able to approach the people in our lives the same once we start following him. And secondly, it will change our pursuits, what we live for. To explain how following Jesus will change our relationships, Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone would come to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, 
Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. One of the most challenging things about living in upstate New York is the winters. It wouldn't be uncommon on most mornings to wake up to it being five to 10 degrees below zero. And so, of course, we had to deal with a lot of icy roads. Earlier on, while we were living there, our whole driveway became a sheet of ice. Of course, me not knowing any better, I assumed that it would eventually break up a bit when it rained or got a little warmer for me to just kind of scrape it up. But what I didn't factor in is how different ice is on a gravel driveway and how thick the ice had become at that point. So when it rained or we happened to have a sunny day, it wasn't budging. I had to finally buy a stronger version of the road salt and only after several bags were we able to finally break through. As we come across these hard sayings of Jesus that Jesus made, it's helpful to look at it as a process, almost like uh, going through ice and having to thaw it because you're not going to understand it at first glance or maybe even after several times of reading it. Some of the things Jesus said can take years to truly unpack. But one of the things that's helpful to do when you come across these sayings or really any hard saying in Scripture is to ask yourself, is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? Because whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it always complements itself. Our job here is to find out how. We know in the Ten Commandments that God tells us to honor our fathers and mothers. And Paul says in 1 Timothy that we should care for our parents when they get older. In fact, Jesus even rebuked the Pharisees for trying to get people to weasel out of helping their parents financially to give their money to God instead, proclaiming that one responsibility doesn't cancel out the other. But probably the most foundational trait Jesus taught about being a disciple is love. Love God. Love our neighbors. Love our enemies. The people in our lives who've hurt us the most. Co-workers who drive us up the wall. People who, when we see them coming by, we're tempted to walk the other way. Jesus says, love them. So obviously the command here to hate doesn't cancel out the call to love. What Jesus does here is use what's called a Semitic idiom. Sometimes the Bible uses absolutes to compare the degree to which we're to love one thing over another. For instance, in Genesis 29, 30 to 31, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It wasn't so much that Jacob hated Leah, but rather his love for Rachel was so much greater that his feelings for Leah paled in comparison. In other words, there's such a big gap between the two, it's almost as if he hates Leah. We see the same thing in Matthew 6.24 about people trying to love God and money equally. But Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Your heart can only have one predominant love. Meaning that though you can care about a lot of things, there's always going to be one person or thing you pour yourself into the most. 
often is what we do that makes us feel alive. We light up when we're around this person or thing. It brings something out of us that others can't. And if that's taken away, we'd fall apart. For some people, it's their job. They get laid off from their company and they don't know what to do now with themselves as they spiral into a pit of depression. For others, it's family. It's that sinking feeling parents get in their gut when their children move far away or go off to college. And they're terrified, wondering, what do we do now? Because they can't imagine life beyond raising their precious children. It's the young couple who are so in love with each other that they send each other heart emojis all day long. They want to spend every waking minute at each other's side, but fail to see how they don't look beyond themselves and consider how God wants to use their marriage to serve and encourage others. But probably more strongly than those, I have never seen a generation more obsessed with the success of their children as this one. People will uproot their lives and move across the country if they have to to make sure their children get the best possible education or are positioned at the right school to where recruiters will see them so that they can get eventually a a, a D1 football or basketball scholarship. Listen, I'm all for doing the best we can for our children. Believe me, I am. What I'm talking about is when our parents' life revolves around their children and often wanting them to have the childhood they didn't will overcompensate by trying to give them everything. You know what I'm talking about. They're the ones yelling at referees like lunatics at peewee games. They'll confront any teacher or coach who gets in their child's way saying, my child doesn't get B's or sit on the bench. They won't take no for an answer. They're relentless about their child's success. And folks, that's idolatry. Remember, idolatry doesn't necessarily have to be bad in and of itself, speaking about the idol. It can be the good things in our lives that we raise to the ultimate thing. Jesus put it like this, where your treasure is, your heart is, meaning you'll give everything you have for whatever you love the most. You'd even be willing to die for it. And so often because our lives are so bound up with our families, we can idolize them. Yet Jesus is saying, I won't compete for a place in your life. You can't fit me into whatever you've got going on or when it's convenient. I've got to be more than an emotional high you get from a retreat or a worship service. Rather, your love for me has to be just as real as your marriage or your children. In fact, when push comes to shove, there shouldn't be a question who's first in your life. Years ago, St. Augustine described it as the right ordering of loves, meaning you have to love the things in your life in the right order so that you don't have, so that you don't love what shouldn't be loved or fail to love what should be loved, or have a greater love for certain things that should be loved less. That's to say, when we love God first, it gives us the capacity to love our friends and family the right way. It's like we have a love tank that God fills, and it overflows pouring down to the people we care about the most. But if we switch that around and and put them first, will crush them with unrealistic expectations or lose ourselves trying to please them. 
Is it any wonder that less people are married these days than ever before? Benjamin Carney and Thomas Bradbury of University of California report that more of the population of the United States is currently unmarried than ever before. 53% today in comparison to 70% in 1970. See, not exclusively, but so often, people are either scared of marriage or bailing from it because of unrealistic expectations. See, if we don't love the right things first, the relationships we crave the most will become the ones we fear the most and we'll lose ourselves in pursuit of them. Thing is, that's not easy to do. I love spending time with my children. But if my schedule is so jam-packed with running from a soccer game to concerts to rehearsals and parties, how will I ever get involved in a church where I can grow and share life with people? It's not intentional. Life just kind of gets filled up with all these different events and things to do. Most of the time, we're exhausted just trying to keep up. But if we're not deliberately making some hard choices with how we spend our time, we can be a part of a church for years and not know anyone. And if that's true, who's really first in our lives? And how are we allowing God to use us to serve others? On the other hand, if we're in a relationship where we have to be someone we're not and compromise our values to be with them, folks, indirectly, we're choosing them over the Lord. These are hard words. But Jesus says this knowing there can only be one person on the throne of our hearts. And if we're not running after him relentlessly with all that we have, we will worship someone else. So you can't follow Jesus casually. He wants to be more than a part of our lives. He's not just a means to a better life or marriage. He wants you to come to him for himself. And the truth is, you will never go to distance with Jesus unless you love him more than life itself. And on top of changing our relationships, following Jesus will also change our pursuits. Notice how at the end of verse 26, that along with hating their brothers and sisters, Jesus also said, yes, even their own life. Back in the parsonage we used to live in, the downstairs bathroom was about two by three feet big. Uh, you'd squeeze in there and here's the toilet, here's the sink. So finally I got to the point where I said, I need to renovate this and make it bigger. I figured with some help from people at church and uh, my father-in-law, I'd be able to knock it out in just a couple weeks. But when you open the walls in an old house, many of you probably know this, you never know what surprises will be waiting for you. Uh, demolition itself took four days as I had to break through shiplap and some other suspicious substances that took forever to clean up. A drainage pipe that, that came from the upstairs bathroom had to be replaced and tucked closer to the wall. Uh, that's part of the reason why the bathroom was so small. Uh, electric lines had to be rewired. When we lifted up the old floor, there was a hole near the toilet that was almost like a skylight looking into the bathroom. So we had to replace the subfloor. Between sheetrock, painting, tiling, and so on, I learned that even a little bathroom can take a lot of work. Hating your life is to realize that Jesus needs to renovate it. And to do that, he has to tear down the old to build up something new. 
He needs to gut out our sinful habits and self-centeredness. Anything that opposes his will for our lives has to be removed. Nothing is salvageable. salvageable. We are more sinful than we could ever know. And of course, thank God, it's a process. We're constantly under renovation until we're in glory. But to experience God's power in your life, you have to give yourself over to that work. And the way we do that is by carrying our cross. When Jesus says in verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The words carry and follow are in the present tense, implying a continuing action, meaning every day I wake up, I will choose to do this, no matter where that leads and what that may cost. Now, the cross back in those days was the ultimate instrument of torture. It was the most gruesome form of execution reserved for the most wicked people, traitors, and criminals. Prisoners were forced to carry the horizontal beam on of the cross on their shoulders to the place they'd be executed to further humiliate them as people would look on thinking, dead man walking. That's the fate that was waiting for Jesus as he's traveling to Jerusalem. See, he knew he would be betrayed by those closest to him and die a God-forsaken death when he became sin for you and me on the cross. And yet he did it anyway. Taking up your cross is a willingness to die with Jesus. It's realizing that when he died, I died. From the moment I repent and believe, my former life is nailed to the cross with him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When native converts of the island of Madagascar used to come to be baptized, they were often asked, what first led you to think of becoming a Christian? The answer was usually uh, seeing the change in others when they came to Christ. One man testified, I knew this man to be a thief. That one was a drunkard. Another was very cruel and unkind to his family. But now they're all changed. The thief is an honest man. The drunker is sober and respectable, and the other is gentle and kind in his home. There must be something in a religion that can do such changes. Carrying a cross is dying to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. It's more than being a moral person. It's a change of heart where you have new desires welling up in you. And you're willing to say no to what you used to say yes to, to say yes to Jesus. I can even give up dreams and plans I held on to for years because I love Jesus now more than life itself. And when you're in a place like that, God doesn't have to pry these things from our hands because we found a greater joy in him. That reveals itself in our lives in at least two ways. First, we will stand for the truth, meaning we're willing to say and do things that are uncomfortable, even when that means standing alone, like refusing to support a family member's decision to do something we know would dishonor God and ultimately hurt them, or lovingly calling out sin in someone's life 
whether we see them disrespecting their spouse or living in personal sin. It's holding on to the truth, even when it's unpopular and might cost your closest friends. Maybe it's telling the higher-ups about crooked practices we see happening at work at the risk of being considered a sellout. Sometimes to be in step with God, we have to be out of step with everyone else. And that's a painful path to walk because you'll be misunderstood. People may start to treat us differently, and we might notice we're not quite respected as we were before. It reminds me of when Jesus tells a disciple, Peter, that when he was younger, he dressed himself and went wherever he wanted. And when he gets older, someone else will lead him where he doesn't want to go. And I think, probably envious of Jesus' relationship with the disciple John, he asked Jesus, well, what about him? And I'm always amazed by Jesus' response when he says, what is that to you? You follow me. See, that's the lot of following Jesus. You leave yourself open to the path you probably wouldn't normally take. And that could be honestly terrifying. But the question is, do I trust God to take care of me? And that's what's waiting for me on the other side of my sanctification. This renovation project is really for my good. The second way carrying our cross reveals itself in our lives is we will give ourselves away. As when we start seeing everything we have as a resource to building the kingdom, whether that's our time, money, gifts, compassion, and so on. I become a steward of using what God has given me to bless others. It's to wake up each morning and pray, what would you have me do today, Lord? Who would you have me serve or witness to? Where would you have me go? What's breaking your heart in my life or the world around me? It's having a kingdom-driven mindset because we love Jesus more than life itself. In the past, if you had a sky view of the building, uh, you would notice that churches used to be built in the shape of a cross. You see this with many old cathedrals where they have a long central nave, the, the central part of the church from the main entrance to the rear wall, crossed by a transept, uh, the aisle in front of the sanctuary. They did this pattern to make a, a theological and practical point. The church lives and worships within the cross. Our lives are marked by suffering, by the suffering of Christ. So let me ask you, if people looked at your life, would they see the cross? Can they say that's someone who dies to herself? Is she more concerned with what God thinks than others? Does she pour herself out to everyone? Now look, there's no cookie-cutter approach to how this looks. Jesus calls each person to give up different things. Some will have to go into full-time ministry, while others will serve him in the workplace, make as much money as they can possible to advance his purposes. We're all growing in understanding what making Jesus the priority of our lives look like. We haven't arrived. All we can do is obey what we see today. But what can happen if we're not careful is we start moving at a snail's pace and hesitate to give up things we should have by now. But Jesus warns us in John 12, 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life.
Anyone who's ever accomplished anything significant in this life is relentless. And that always comes at a cost. Are you willing to pay the price of following Jesus? We can't live for him if we're not willing to die for him. But anything worth living for is worth dying for. And when you live in the shadow of the cross, remembering what he's done for you, you will run after him relentlessly because following Jesus is to love him more than life itself. And Father God, we do pray for that desire, those new desires, Lord. Maybe it needs to be rekindled. Maybe someone's hearing this for the first time who hasn't accepted you as Lord and Savior. I pray they would know it is a warm invitation. Just the reality is, as you follow, as we follow you, things will be sacrificed. Things will be given up, but it's for something greater. You say in your word that the trials we go through now are, are light and momentary compared to the weight of glory. Lord, I pray that you would help me, help us understand more and more just how glorious our future is in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.